poetry has become as important to me as any reading and contemplating I do, which is why I'm always eager to remind you about our ongoing initiative, the Poetry Radio Project. It's a place where you can discover the poetry that so many of our guests fold into their lives. And you can also delve deep into reading and listening to the many wonderful poets we've had on the show. Check out one of my favorites that Mary Oliver read for us, I Happened to be Standing. You'll also find Naomi Shihab Nye, John O'Donohue, Laylee Long Soldier, and many, many more. All that at onbeing.org slash poetry. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Christian Wyman. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at onbeing.org. Hi, this is Christian Wyman. Uh, Sarah stepped out for a minute. Can you hear me? Hi, Christian. It's Krista Tippett. Hi, Krista. How are you? Good. I'm so happy to have you at the other end of the microphone. Oh, thanks for thanks for having me. I, I actually thought you were going to be here in the studio today. Oh, I didn't realize we were no. Doing... You know, there's a real intimacy to doing it this way, though, which I I've I've come to appreciate. Just yeah. What? Yeah. What? Just what the human voice alone can, conveys. And yeah, you have to concentrate. I've done it a lot. Yeah. You have to concentrate a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it's all. It's it, it's also then if that's all we have to work with and then that's also of course all that the listener gets so it's only fair <laughs> yeah yeah um actually you know you've been on our list for a long long time and then uh after you were on Moyers a few weeks ago we just had this uh thunderous demand and, and I know I I wouldn't actually normally give in to something like that just give in to something like that but it it felt right so I'm glad to oh, have well you. I'm I know your show I mean you know, actually I'll tell you a story I I was uh in the hospital getting ready for a bone marrow transplant in the fall and I listened to all I've listened to many of your shows but I listened to all of the shows <laughs> uh, sort of one after another because I, I hadn't I had nothing to do I was, I was, right, I was a captive audience oh wow well, that's... but I loved it you can't get the early years though or I couldn't get them on my computer is that um, yeah well I guess there's the point at which podcasting started and things became mp3s and then I think also real audio stopped working at some point and we're actually going through right now and um we're going through this whole whatever they're doing they're bringing the website back to life in a way and that's part of it is converting earlier things it's funny from it's hard for me to listen to earlier shows though because i mean the interviews actually were the same but the show's been very evolutionary and i uh you know i've learned a lot also as a like as the narrator person, so I'm sure I don't like listening to myself in those early years. <laughs> Does it feel like you because because you knew too much what you expected from people, or because it was too circumscribed? No, or, I, I don't you know? actually think the interviews. I mean, I think certainly I've gotten better because you do get better at something you do a lot. You learn, but um, the, the interviews were, are, you know, also yielded a lot of the same kinds of things. It's more how we scripted into the show. Um, and mm. and my I was much more self conscious when I was in that uh, narrating mode, and what I thought I had to tell people for them to come into the conversation. 
And these I days see. we just really rest and let the conversation speak for itself. So yeah. <laughs> it's kind of internal things that might not make sense to anybody else, but when you're in the industry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Hey, Chris, this yeah. is Sarah. I'm the engineer at BEZ. Hi, what I'm going to do, I'm mm-hmm. going to duck um, your your levels um, coming back okay. when, um, when um, so so that should mitigate some of the Okay. Noise. It's very, in fact, I'm not hearing it right now, so I think we're okay. 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 So, Christian, um, the great thing about this format is we get to have a real conversation that may not necessarily be linear. Um, and, uh, what I thought I'd do, uh, if, is if I'm not going to, I'm actually, I've actually been really steeped in your prose as much as your poetry. And I mm-hmm. think the interview is going to revolve more around ideas that you've done in both places. But, um, if you at some point want to read a poem, then just please offer that and we'll do it. And then I okay. thought at the end, um, I'd love for you to read a few that just for some reason are important to you now or maybe have suggested themselves as relevant to what we've talked about. Okay. So let's just be spontaneous. Uh, so she's about really, that. she's fading in and out of my ear, of my headphones. Um, can you push your headphone jack in a little bit more? Okay. I, I'm going to have Christian push his headphone okay. jack in a little bit more. Sometimes if you brush up against it, it gets a little. All right, let's try that. Okay. Um, how, how am I fading still? No, she's, I, yeah, yeah okay, I, I've got you good. now. Okay. I heard everything. It was just fading in yeah. and out. Okay. So should the, we... Uh, the other thing, Krista, yeah. mm-hmm. want, um, I just published, or actually it's coming out, well, it's it's out, but it, the publication date is next week of the, mm-hmm. this, uh, and I had them send you a copy, these selected poems of Osip Mandelstam. Yes, I got that. I got that. Yeah. And and there might be a poem in there that would fit in really well with uh, uh, something we talk about. Yeah. Do you have that with you? I do. Okay, great. Yeah, that's yeah, that's whatever you whatever you want to read whenever is fine. Okay. Um, I uh All right, well should we go? Should we start? Okay. So, <clears throat> you don't always hear this when you listen to the program on the air, but I always start um every conversation whoever it is, if however or if they're religious or not by asking about their religious or spiritual background of somebody's childhood, which is such an interesting place for people to go. And I have to say <clears throat> Um, you know, I always talk to people about this, and I've heard and read a lot of stories about, you know, this the interesting ways religion and spirituality get communicated to us as children. I have to say, Christian, that your story of all of them that I've heard all these years is the most familiar to me. <laughs> and so, you know, I want you to fill this out if I don't say it correctly, but I grew up in, not in West Texas, but in central Oklahoma. And growing up absolutely immersed in this religious universe, which meant everything, right? But then when I right. left that place, and like you, I went far, far away, it was the religious piece stopped to make sense as well, because it was that it was the whole package. Yeah, I think uh, for me it was a big loss. I didn't realize exactly how large a loss for years because I just, like so many people, dispensed with it. Uh, yeah. You know, the way you change clothes or something and became an agnostic or whatever you want to call it. But um, I wonder, you know, I've got little kids now and, and I do think about what I should teach them and how I should teach them in, in terms of their spiritual lives um, because I greatly value the way I was raised, which was 
you know, completely immersed in that culture. And yeah, going to you, a, did you go world. to church like twice on Sunday and Wednesday night? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes yeah. even more. And we, yeah. you know, we had to learn Bible verses and say them in, at, uh, uh, in over the, the meals and you know, we the knew the hymns yeah. and had the singing and and there was no. Uh, possibility of puncture to that world. You know, I never met anybody who didn't believe until I went off to college. Right. Never met a soul. Right. You know, and, and I'm, if I remember the first time I met somebody, it was, that, I mean, I half expected him to start swiveling his head around. And, <laughs> you know, and, no. I mean, I was I mean, I was did you know any Catholics? Scared. It's not even, it was like other kinds of Christians were. I did know, I did have a good friend who was Catholic, and I went to, and we didn't, we actually didn't have the uh, bias against Catholics in my family for some reason. I don't, huh. I don't, uh, we didn't have that, but uh, um, but I certainly didn't know anyone who wasn't a Christian. And you know, it's a good thing. I value the I value the coherence of it, and I value the intensity of it. Yeah. Um, and you know, the momentum that it's given my life, but it's also created all kinds of difficulties, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah. I think there are a lot of people like us, though, in this country, and especially in I don't know what we call the Bible Belt, but I'm not sure. When you get outside the Bible Belt, I'm not sure it's a narrative people recognize. I think that's true. I think, and I, I have discovered that there is an enormous number of people in this in this country who are, uh, you know, they have some kind of religious language that's they're just unhappy with. It's yeah. not. It doesn't accord with their, you know, their feelings of the sacred or their feelings of what spirituality means, and they're casting about for some new way of believing. Mm-hmm. And, and yet you can't just jettison everything that you that you have, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll talk about this some more. Um, I, I also wonder about the origins of your life as a poet. Um, you know, in one of your essays, you, you, you start by saying when you were, that when you were 20 years old, you set out to be a poet. But right. I guess I'm curious, too, about... You know where you see the inklings of that, or the impulses, or hungers, or habits that were there earlier in your life that then somehow came to life at that point when you were twenty. Well, I certainly wrote when I was a little kid. I just didn't really know that they were poems. I didn't. Uh, I mean, my mother is a creative person. She would mm. paint, and you know, uh, and she would write things herself. Uh, I just we weren't a we weren't a family that read. There weren't books around, and. Um, but I did try to emulate the hymns that I heard, and I would write these little fragments of things and little songs. And in fact, when I, when we were, I think I was six or seven years old, we went to the First Baptist Church in Dallas, which at the time was the largest Baptist church in the world. I don't know if it still is, huh. but it took up four city blocks, was this massive place. And the guy's name was his Brother Criswell. I forget his first name, but... Um, uh, they published the uh, Southern Baptist Newsletter out of out of there, and it was just this enormous place. And at the end of the service, you know, they would have what I'm sure you grew up with. They would have the call for people to be saved, and yeah. and people would flood the aisles at this place because there were thousands of of uh, people in the congregation. And so one day, I when I was six or seven years old, I uh, left my family and ran down there. Didn't even tell them. They thought I was going to get saved, and and uh, and I just handed him a poem that I had written, and the poem was, "I love the Lord, and the Lord loves me. I will not forget, and neither will he." Wow. The whole thing. Wow. And then and then it turned up in the Southern Baptist newsletter. He published it. You know, I, I turned around, and ran back, and he'd published it in the Southern Baptist newsletter. And there's this little poem there. You know, when I was probably my biggest publication. 
That's right. <laughs> <laughs> And I would bet that you are the only editor of Poetry Magazine who's ever had his first poem published in the Southern Baptist Magazine. That's probably true. That's probably true. Although there have been editors who are very interested in theology. That mm-hmm. Henry Rego was very interested in theology. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then, of course, at another, on another level, somewhere you wrote that your childhood was the very forge and working house of poetry. I mean, in terms of... Uh, the raw materials of drama and pathos and emotion. I mean, your childhood was, <laughs> there's so much violence in there, right? I mean, in your family. Well, I think, I, I think it's a, my family's very chaotic. You know, I, it's funny, I just had my nephew visiting me and I feel like compared to uh, his life, mine was a breeze. Um, huh. uh, so it, it has, it has continued that, that wave of difficulties, but, um, but yes, I think uh, I, I I would not say that I'd had a difficult childhood compared to a lot of the people I've seen since then, because I I was loved by my family, and you know a lot of people grow up without love, yeah. and I was I grew up with a great deal of love, and and uh, it, and I think there was a lot of intensity and confusion and difficulty, and and there was some violence, but but uh, um, over for the most part, uh, my childhood was was pretty good really. Mm-hmm. I mean if you have if you have someone loving you, yeah. my things just went out. And your your mother watched her father kill her mother. Or no, right? Kill my mother yeah, uh, that happened when my mother was fourteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She she watched her her father came in and and shot her mother and and uh, my mother and her two brothers were sitting at the table and then and um oh, it's really an awful story. She turned around and and the the my grandmother her mother turned around and and said oh fred no and and uh you know she realized what had happened she got shot in the back mm. and and the kids ran out and then uh her father just lay down beside his wife and shot himself and mm. and my mother moved from place to place that happened when she was 14 years old and all those kids got separated and and they uh uh lived very chaotic lives, but all uh, ended up being successful. Yeah. Uh, sometimes in quite dramatic ways. One of the one of the brothers was a uh, head of the University of Pennsylvania medical medical <laughs> system. The whole thing. So they um, they all you know came out emerged out of that, but uh, not psychologically intact. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I suppose what's just striking me right now as we talk is um, that story gets told, and it's very dramatic about that murder, but really what's astonishing about the story is, as you say, you were raised by this woman who went through that when she was 14, and and she loved you, and that was this defining thing that she was able to do, despite yeah, you that. Know, I was raised, yeah, well, I was raised in a very masculine culture, and I was, you know, I played football and went hunting, and I got in tons of fights when I was a kid, and, and um, uh, that I had that sort of masculine inclination and imperative in me and around me all the time. But when I look back at my life, it's my mother and my grandmother who really shaped me that Hmm. both of them, it's very, it's feminine uh, consciousness is uh, that, that I responded to. And both of them, my, my, my mother is a more educated person than my grandmother and, uh, you know, conscious in a very different sense. But, my grandmother had a kind of consciousness that 
really it took me a long time to understand because I think many and I think many people would simply say it was unconsciousness. Uh, I mean, she lived within that religious culture that that we talked about that was completely saturated and defined uh, defined by you know Baptist theology, but. Uh, she also lived in her world in a way that uh, is unlike you know anyone I've known since. Actually, she did, I mean she knew her world down to the down to the least flower, the least creature that was in her yard, the uh, uh, you know, and every person that was in her life. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of I mean passive consciousness. And I, I, I mean I, I like to use the word passive without any pejorative. Right meaning, but a kind of passive consciousness that seems to me in some ways exemplary, and I think uh, poetry comes out of that. And and my mother's is different. Hers is more active, and, and uh, I mean, she's a, my mother is a force of nature. She's, yeah. she's a, uh, uh, she storms into places. She's very dynamic, and she's uh, you know, a very charismatic person. Yeah. Uh, she's the opposite of my grandmother, and, and, and that was sort of, those two, those two things mixed up together, I think, made a made a, a decent place to grow up as a poet. Um, you know, you say passive, but what I also think of is, is uh, embodied, you know, conscious. I mean, f- physical, physical, incarnational almost, you could say, that in t- the in consciousness that all manifests itself in physical reality and is in touch with that. Yeah, I love that definition, actually. I think that's a great definition of the way she was. And I actually, I have a, um, there's a section in this book that is about her. Oh. Let me just. Your find new it. is this it. your new book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, here we go. Yeah, there's this one section in this poem that you wouldn't know it exactly that it's about my grandmother in the poem, but it is, and it says, "She who in her last days loved too well to lose a single weed to namelessness, in creosote, blue grandma, goat's beard that is not thriving." is amid the cattails brittle whisper whispers oh law honey ain't this a praiseful thing and so that in that Mm. section she actually becomes those weeds that she knew so utterly that's exactly what you were talking about so one thing i really like in your poetry and i i mean and i think it connects also to your to your faith which, but but I'd like to just think about it in terms of fo- poetry first. Also, having just heard that is this real tie to reality, which also gets intellectualized. The notion of reality, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and yeah. right, and um, I don't know. When I was reading through you, I I also found a lot of um, reference to reality from Simone Weil. It is necessary to have had a revelation of reality through joy in order to find reality through suffering. Or even in this essay you wrote, Hive of Nerves, you talked about Christ using metaphors, um, but speaking the language of reality in terms of the physical world. Um, and I just, I wanted to know, and then, you know, and then I think back to the, the reality of your life. And you know, now you are a poet and an intellectual, but you know a lot of really gritty reality. I mean, also, there there were other guns in there. I mean, you were you were with a f- friend when he shot his father in the face. That's reality. Right. Um, it, it's not just the I don't know Simone Weil. I, I feel like when you hear her talk about reality, it, it it can easily feel a little bit too philosophical. 
So tell me about how you think poetry works with reality. You know, what is it about the language of poetry that helps us think about reality uniquely? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I have been sick lately, and, and uh, I actually had a bone marrow transplant back in October and was in the hospital for quite a long time. Um, and one of the things, poetry died for me for a while. I found that it just wasn't speaking to me, and, and uh, I think I had certain expectations that uh, it took me a while to realize were false expectations. I think we often talk about poetry getting us beyond the world, it taking us to the very edge of experience and yeah. then getting us into the ineffable. And uh, I have to say, when I was you know, faced with the actual ineffable, I didn't <laughs> want poetry that gave me more of the ineffable. Uh. What I wanted po- was, was some way of apprehending the world that was right in front of me that was slipping away. I wanted the world you know, in front of my eyes. And, and, uh, and the poems that I found useful were absolutely concrete sometimes not at all about religious things and not at all about spiritual things, but, but uh, um, simply, uh, you know, reality and reality rendered in such a way that you could see it again. There's, there's a great uh, quote from the uh, mid-20th century uh, literary critic R.P. Blackmer. He's talking about John Berryman. He said that his work, you know, adds to the stock of available reality. It add, added to the stock mm. of available reality. And that's a good way to think about what a real poem can do. It, it suddenly makes, makes the amount of reality that you have in your life greater. It makes you you're able, right, to, right. able to apprehend more of it. You know, recently I was talking to a physicist, a string theorist, who's working with a new kind of mathematical language. I mean, I don't really profess to understand this, but he's essentially kind of doing with... He, he's taking... He's taking mathematics beyond equations, and the analogy we were talking about is the difference between poetry and prose. And so the fact that there are truths you simply can't convey in a factual sentence, right? But that, hmm. that poetry can, and, it's, and he's kind of doing something similar with, um, there, it seems to be, it seems possibly that there are physical realities that you can't convey with an equation, but that a more visual mathematics might be able to convey. Gosh, that's interesting. I think that's why physics is so fascinating yeah. to me and the poet, you yeah. know, contemporary poets these days. It's a, uh, there is some kind of uh, reality that's being revealed that we can only reach through our through oblique ways. It's, I, I, yeah, you know, I think it reaches way back. It's why I'm drawn to uh, mystics like Meister Eckhart and uh, and and more contemporary ones like Simone Weil and language of apophasis, where you where you you know what it is. You 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 state something, but it, you, this the statement sort of unstates itself. So that Meister Eckhart said, you know, we ask, we pray to God to be free of God. We ask God to be free of God. Right. Um, and I don't think he wanted to, you know, give up his religion. Uh, he, that the idea wouldn't have occurred to him, but he wanted to give up that idea of God as being this thing outside of our consciousness. And I think. Uh, um, one thing poetry can do is take us to those places um, where reality slips a bit. You know, what we think of yeah. as reality slips a bit, like those those equations in physics, and suddenly we're perceiving something differently than before. And it's not 
it's not this. Uh, it's not all airy fairy mysticism either. No, it's, no. It's 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 it's, it's quite uh, angular and hard, hard edged, and that's what I think the uh, analogy is with the with physics and with physical science. Yeah, it's it's almost like, I like that word you used, oblique. You, it's almost that things that in fact have been get diminished when they get captured in more straightforward language that you can only even kind of evoke them with with a, with poetry which is a different way of using language yeah it's a real balancing act but how you uh, how you find a language that can at once give voice to that kind of uh, expression within us which is what is what we're talking about is very ineffable you know difficult yeah. difficult to grasp and yet can be coherent enough to bind a community together and right. um, I think one of the one of the frustrations I have with a lot of the churches I've gone to is they they are um, well they either forget about this or the the, the, the the issue doesn't arise or and and the language is just too static too too uh, uh, mired in old ways of thinking about these things yeah God is pinned down um, in that language right yeah right yeah uh-huh. um or it's the opposite. It's all, you know, it's all so vague that I can't figure out what's going on. I uh-huh. can't figure out what God we're, we're all trying to praise. Yeah. And, and I think it's very difficult to find a language that can, can do that. I, I um, have written in a couple of places that I wish, uh, well, about poetry and how poetry could um, uh, inform the liturgy and change the contemporary liturgy. I'm actually talking to a bunch of preachers this um this summer about this in a five-day workshop near you, actually, near St. Paul. Oh, really? That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, something that I that was actually a complete revelation to me when I studied theology um, after, you know, like, like you, I spent years of, I would never say that I was, you know, that I definitively said there is no God, but it was, I didn't know what to do with it, and it didn't feel very actively relevant. Um but then I, when I, when I actually went to divinity school, um, <laughs> to learn that so much. So, so it seems to me what you're talking about there, talking to those pastors, is actually a return to the way, in fact, a lot of these truths are communicated in the Bible, which so much of it is, is in fact, poetry. I mean, the Book of Job is a poem. Yeah, so much of the Bible is poetry. And the Psalms. Uh, so it's in there. I mean, it's actually in the original text to rediscover. Yeah. Yeah, we're not a culture that's very, very uh, comfortable with poetry. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I grew up; those things were made absolutely literal. Yeah. I mean, just the most, the most literal interpretation of those verses in the world, and and that they're so clearly metaphorical. The truths are so obviously metaphorical, and and if they're not understood that way by either side, then they're just they're exactly. just uh, yeah. destroyed. You know. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting that. Um, your return to faith um, was very much connected to finding love, and I'm yeah, it was. <laughs> and you know it I'm was. I'm resisting saying falling in love because what I what I think of when I read the way you write about this and talk about this is um, you're not just actually describing something about faith you're you're describing something about love that we forget because. We do throw it around so much, and it's something you fall in and to and fall out of. 
Yeah. But, but what you have really, really dug into, partly because you're a writer and you had these such dramatic experiences all at the same time, is, you know, love as something that puts us in touch with transcendence and with mystery. You were just really aware of that and articulate about it. Well, I think, um, uh, I mean, it was a it was a revelatory time for me because I certainly would never have said those things in the past. I had to have the experience to be able to write about it. In fact, I would have uh, actively denigrated the notion, probably. The notion of? Uh, oh, the notion that that uh, that love could open up the world for you in that way. You know, there's a there's a we just published a poem in the magazine by a poet named Spencer Reese, who's uh, become an Anglican priest, as it happens, and he's talking about a the whole poem is an elegy for someone he knew and uh, is trying to get at the truth of his life. And he says, all I know is that the more he loved me, the more I loved the world. Mm. And um, I think in any genuine love, and it's not simply romantic love. Right, it's other love, loves, yeah. yes. It's our love for yeah. our children. Yeah, it's friendships. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think there's some kind of uh, excess energy we we tend to think of love as closing out the world and we can only see the face of the beloved and and you know that everything else goes quiet or goes goes numb and but actually what i experienced was that and i've experienced it again with my children is that as that is that the love demanded to be something else it demanded to be expressed beyond the expression of of the participants you know it kept demanding more yeah and um uh that excess energy, I think, is uh, God. I mm. think I and 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 I think it's God in us trying to return to its source. I think it's I, I don't know how else to understand it, but the but the if I think of myself as having returned to faith, and I do think of that, although I feel like I'm a desperately confused person, and when people look to me <laughs> for for <laughs> advice or or direction on faith, I just feel sometimes like it's hilarious, but. Um, uh, I, I, uh, uh, I, I feel like it was that energy, a, a very positive energy that drove me in that direction. Not a negative, not fear, not fear, you know, not, not a fear of being destroyed. Um, the, those things, that was not it at all. It was, it was the, it was an excess of life rather than a constriction of life. Yeah. It's, it's that way that, um, as you say, different kinds of love seem to, put us in touch with something that's vital in ourselves that we might have forgotten, but also give us this larger kind of demanding sense of a greater sense to life itself, which easily points at God and religion. Yeah, I think the difficulty then is, you know, how do you... The difficulty for me is how then do you acknowledge it in your life? You know, I think we have these experiences and um, uh, and they are people react against the word spiritual these yeah. days they uh, but uh i don't know what other word to use at this point they are spiritual experiences and then religion comes after that religion is everything that we do with these moments of intense spirituality in our lives um whether it's whatever practice we have whether it's going to church whether how it's how we how we integrate sacred texts into our lives all that is religion and, and all that comes after the fact i think after the fact of these primary experiences. Yeah, I haven't actually, I don't know if I've talked to anybody about this, but I, a few weeks ago at the New York Public Library, I was, uh, Pico Ayer was there. Mm-hmm. And um, he was being interviewed, and he made this comment that 
I, I used to get asked this a lot. What's the difference between religion and spirituality? You know, and I, I don't know. I, it's a hard. I feel like I never come up with the right answer. But he said, he said, uh, spirituality is the water is water, and religion is tea. <clears throat> what came to me is actually, <laughs> actually, spirituality is water, and religion is the cup. It, you know, it holds it, that carries it through time, that you drink from. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I, what did he mean by tea? I mean, it, I think, it's, well, uh, what he meant is that you can live, you can live from water. That water sustains you. Water is what we need, and tea is just a little more complicated and flavorful. <laughs> I think that's what he meant, right? <laughs> that you've added something to it, but it's not necessary. Hmm. But I, I yeah, like I, your I, way of saying that it's religion is what brings it in coherently into the fabric of life. Yeah, and that if you think of it as a vessel, a cup, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. I don't quite understand his metaphor, but I, mm-hmm. but I do understand that as a, a religion is a way of, of, you know, if it's not, you're not being religious, being religious or taking on some sort of religious elements in your life, you're not necessarily saying I agree with everything that's that this religion says or I agree with every, you know, it, um, it's very much, you're very much wrestling with it. I think what you are saying is that I've had these incredible experiences in my life of suffering or joy or both and and they have uh demanded some action of me and and demanded some continuity of me mm-hmm. and the only way that i know to do this is to is is to uh try to find some form in it and try to share it with other people i i actually wanted to ask you about the words faith and belief because you know, those are kind of used as the next stage from spirituality. But I, I like the way you talk about faith. I, my, my problem in the, our public life and even in our political life is then faith and belief. Then it's it becomes a matter of opinions and um, ideas. And you know, you've written faith is not a state of mind, but an action, a movement, an action in the world, a movement towards the world. That mm-hmm. these are not abstractions. I think of them, the way I've de- defined it to myself is I think of belief as having objects. I believe that Christ is the Son of Man. I mm-hmm. believe the world was created in six days. I believe that you know the universe is 5,000. I don't believe that this thing, but the world is 5,000 years old or whatever. I don't mm-hmm. believe that, but, mm-hmm. but that's a belief. Uh, faith doesn't have objects. Uh, faith, is, uh, faith is an orientation of your life. Mm. That, okay. that uh, or it's or it's an, an energy of your life, or you know, however you want to define it. But it, but I think it is objectless. It doesn't have to be faith and, in, because right. that's how it gets. Okay, right, mm-hmm. and and that has helped me to at least understand those terms somewhat, and um, uh, to to explain to myself why I do need some sort of structures in my life. I do need to go to church. I need I need. Uh, um, specifically religious elements in my life. It doesn't, if I, I find that if I just turn all of my spiritual impulses, if I let them be solitary as I am comfortable in being, I'm comfortable sitting, reading books and, yeah. and trying to pray and, uh, and meditating. Um, inevitably, if that energy is not focused outward, it becomes despairing. It turns in on itself and, and, I, and I will look up in a, in a couple of months and I find that I'm in despair. And so I think that uh, uh, one of the ways that we know that our spiritual inclinations are valid is that they lead us out of ourselves. 
I I also experience that um, people become spiritual um, in many different ways for different reasons, but often that the trajectory of that is often to move back towards some of the things that religion um, has always brought forward in time, like community, community, like like it being communal and not yeah. just individual. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think. I mean, Sorry, yeah, ahead, no, please. your your story to me is very much an example also of this phenomenon of our time where we choose these things, where we create our spiritual lives, which is really new. Um, I mean, you know, you were given this religious world as a center of gravity in your childhood, which a lot of people were until just a decade or two ago. Um and then there's the image I have of you and your fiancé standing outside this church. Was it right the day you got engaged? That's right, and, and not going in. Not going yeah. in, but then eventually deciding to go in. Yeah. I think uh, it's a perilous, difficult situation for people to, for everyone to be left on their own trying right. to choose <laughs> to have their charge spiritual of this. life. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think that's that's a lot of you know mid-century Protestant theology led by Karl Barth was a reaction against this. Yeah. Um, that uh, you know you can't simply trust your gut, trust your impulses. That we've got to have some some way of uh, of um, of finding God together. And uh, you know for him it was for him it was it was the Bible, and uh, he was he was very conservative and in certain ways and I I just cannot go there I cannot follow I disagree with uh, much of Karl Barth's writings although I've wrestled tremendously with it and I I can't that neo-orthodox that orthodoxy yeah right even even where it's uh, it's uh, I think it's impelled by liberal impulses as Karl Barth was but I I I just can't it it just um I don't think it's the direction. I don't think we can just recover orthodoxy in this in that way. I think I really feel that a whole new language is being created, and there's too many people who are struggling with this. And uh, I mean, uh, traditional religious language is part of it and will be part of it, but a whole new thing is being created, and it's it's going to involve other religions. It's going to involve other practices, and. I don't think you can simply resist it and say, you know, I'm going to just have my little corner and keep it safe and secure. Mm. I think a lot about um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in prison before he died in a, you know, in an e- <laughs> extreme situation of having seen the church and orthodoxy and religious language be completely co-opted by evil. Yeah, but saying. You know, starting to talk about what would religious, religionless Christianity look like, but but also what saying that he thought that even as the language and the ideas might cease to be relevant, that the truths behind them would persist, and kind of what you just said—that new language and new forms would would continually be recreated to 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 express those. Yeah. I often, I love Bonhoeffer, and I'm struck by something else he said, that he said in a letter that he was often more drawn to atheists, and he had felt more fellow feeling with atheists than he yeah. did with his fellow believers. Yeah. Um, 
and he was trying to un- understand that yeah, in himself. And um, I lost my train of thought. Just a second. You can edit this out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can edit it again because I want uh, I want to hear where it's going. Um, Did, was it that he shared their questions or their impatience? I don't. I totally get that, but I don't remember that. Um, that quote. Yeah. Um, God, I just forgot what I was going to say. But so, you know, you've been really, you're really vocal about your Christianity. And, but do you also feel that? Do you, do you feel that? Uh, is that a kinship with Bonhoeffer also? Because even more than him, you're surrounded by people who don't necessarily share your assumptions. I mean, just as a Western uh, intellectual in the 21st century. Yeah, I you know Bonhoeffer. Um, I I'm struck by I find Bonhoeffer an incredible figure because, uh, uh, I mean, not simply because he returned to Germany when he could have had a safe life in the United States. He you know he returned and and he felt like he if he didn't uh, do something if he didn't share in the destruction of Germany, then he couldn't credibly participate in its restoration. Yeah. And and he also simply felt that he had a call, and it's uh, you know it's very sobering to read his early books, the the cost of discipleship, and yeah. and and uh, he talks about what it means to have a call. You know, he he says only 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 a person who obeys can believe. Yeah. That uh um, which is a hard statement. Mm-hmm. That um you know we wait for the, wait and wait and wait for the right thing to do in our lives, but he says no 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 you you've got to obey follow that follow that impulse even as as hazy as it is and then your faith will come you don't get it first you don't get it first and you know so he he lost his life in that but i'm 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 particularly struck by bonhoeffer because um he not only did he say he had that fellow feeling with atheists and he talked about religionless christianity yeah. um uh, and he, he also said at one point you know um, we must we must be in a, a world with God has called us to be in a world without God yeah. Bef- before right. God and without God we stand with with God and and, and uh, uh, so despite all of that despite all of that uh, sort of quintessentially modern uh, agony spiritual agony the feeling you get from Bonhoeffer is uh, spiritual clarity and and uh and this intense just steel like faith yeah i mean if you if you were looking for somebody and you know, he said he said um, christ is always stronger in our brother's heart than in our own and and uh meaning we we need other people uh to sort of believe to 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 give our belief um reality we need to see it in other people and you look at him and you see you see such belief amid such despair i find him such a uh, a wonderful exemplary figure um of 20th century religion theology he even to me seems some of some of his st- statements have the feeling of poetry they seem so yes wonderfully suggestive yes absolutely um i mean you you often quote george lindbeck who's a theologian yeah and this is, I think a lot of people would be a little bit taken aback by this quote. Um, you can no more be religious in general than you can speak language in general. 
and tell me what that means. I mean, that's something you've embraced. So, and so tell me, tell what what does that mean? What is that about? Uh, well, I did. I I do. That does make sense to me. Um, um, but well, let me qualify it just mm-hmm. by just by saying um, I feel very wary of of saying what other people are able to do. Like I said before, I feel mm-hmm. my myself very sort of uh, confused in my own beliefs and. Um, I find that uh, it's like we were talking earlier. If I don't have some kind of form, some coherent form and language in which to think of these intense experiences in my life that lead me to God, uh, then they just they just sort of evaporate. Yeah. They just evaporate, and they become they become like you know, little epiphanies in nature, or little you know wonderful little moments with my child and 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 wonderful powerful things in my life but not integrated in my life and and they don't and they don't seem to mean anything in my life you know, cumulatively mm-hmm. and uh and i think that um i need some way of holding all this together and christianity is a way of 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 doing it i don't mean to suggest that it's just um pragmatic though because I do believe in Christ uh, I mean I, I call myself a Christian because I do believe that Christ uh, uh, was the embodiment of God and that and that uh, um, it was God's suffering God coming to earth to, to, to suffer as we have suffered I believe those things as I am able to um, or I should say I I try to have I try to turn my faith in that direction mm-hmm. um, and and uh, um, I find if I just if I don't if I just try to be my be my own individual spiritual self um, nothing holds together nothing hangs together not only does it not hang together it's it's palpably destructive in my life I'd be better off mm. without it mm. so when you said a minute ago, you know, we're developing a new language. I mean, to me, um, that spiritual clarity and, in fact, you know, or, bon, let's say Bonhoeffer also was orthodox, certainly. Yeah, he was um, very orthodox. You know, the spiritual clarity, orthodox clarity, and what, for lack want of a better word, we can call openness to reality, let's say. Um I feel like that's what we're grasping for now. And but so when you see in somebody like Bonhoeffer, those things were not in contradiction. It was. It was. There's oh, some. Yeah. Yeah. There's. And some, that's what you're describing in yourself. That. Yeah. There is some con- combination of austerity and clarity. I think that um, that I think we as a as a whole culture are grasping toward, and. Um, uh, I don't. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't. The main movement of the culture is against it. All the political language, all that is just rot. Uh, I mean, all the the religious discourse that goes on in the political culture and on television, and all these places. Yeah, I don't just, take that. I just think just, that's an expression it's, of its own self and not this. We're what we're talking about, which is right. It's just the real it world. Seems to, yeah, it seems not to not to have anything to do with reality. But mm-hmm. but I do think there's this huge cultural grasping toward. Um, uh, clarity and austerity. I mean, something that won't be so, you know, frou frou and and slip out of our grasp mm-hmm. and and uh, um, 
just make us think it's ridiculous, uh, and and uh, and yet also something that um, is open enough to engage those parts of us that that we don't understand that we, that that where we feel ourselves just drifting out of ourselves. You know, let, yeah. let me read one poem that I yeah. wrote. This poem. Um, I wrote this you know, several years ago after getting the diagnosis of having this incurable cancer. And, and, uh, and at the time when I got the diagnosis, I got it about six years ago now. Um, uh, it, it looked very bad at the time. And, uh, well, in fact, it's been bad, but at, but at the time it, it, it looked, uh, it looked, um, bad immediately. And, and I was in despair once, and I wrote this poem. It's called From a Window. And because everyone's listening, I'll just tell you that the image that you see is a, uh, 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 is a flock of birds taking off from a, from a tree. Incurable and unbelieving in any truth but the truth of grieving, I saw a tree inside a tree rise kaleidoscopically, as if the leaves had livelier ghosts. I pressed my face as close to the pain as I could get to watch that fitful, fluent spirit that seemed a single being undefined or countless beings of one mind haul its strange cohesion beyond the limits of my vision over the house heavenwards. Of course I knew those leaves were birds. Of course that old tree stood exactly as it had and would, but why should it seem fuller now? And though a man's mind might endow even a tree with some excess of life to which a man seems witness, that life is not the life of men. And that is where the joy came in. So I wrote this poem one day out of complete despair, and it exploded into this joy at mm. the end. And, uh, you know, I thought I was articulating despair, just giving a kind of cry to it. And the poem swerved into, into this joy. And I think mm. I, when I talk about the kinds of experiences that lead us to God and, and that... Uh, um, make us seek some sort of religious form for our lives. This is one for me, the writing of, of this poem, which, which taught me something. Mm. Uh, keep going. Did you? I don't, I don't, I don't think the poem would, uh, uh, you know, necessarily fit neatly into any religion. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, it's not, uh, there is that word heavenwards, but yeah. but uh, in it, but um, you know the concept of heaven doesn't mean much to me. Um, I I think it is simply an expression of the sense a lot of us have that our lives are more than our lives. Mm-hmm. You know that that we have souls, and and uh, um, that can that can very much go away if you stop attending to it you can you can stop being able to feel that and that's what had happened to me before i wrote this poem and Seamus Heaney says that poems should be stepping stones in our lives he meant for the poet that they are sort of 
uh, incremental ways of understanding your life, of getting to the next, the next step. I think it's true as a reader too. And this one was a big one for me. You know, I took a, a big step toward understanding hmm. uh, what it was I believed in. Yeah, so we're, we're all mortal, but you have become much more aware of that than, than, we, than the rest of us are necessarily most of the time. Yeah, I think you're, I was talking with my wife about this, uh, actually earlier today, I think you're, when it's really on you, when you're, you know, like, like I say, I had that bone marrow transplant in the fall, when it, when the, you're really facing um, either something's going to work or this is it, uh, your whole life just becomes this, the shape of, I mean, the size of a pin. I mean, you see everything mm. through this pinhole, and uh, um, that's all you can concentrate on you know your whole life is cancer or whatever it happens to be and and um it's a very strange disorienting feeling when 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 that's taken away actually because suddenly um suddenly it goes away and you just immediately step back into your life and Mm. and uh it's hard to live it's very hard to live it's hard to i don't know whether it's a kind of post-traumatic sensation or whatever it is but it's it's uh it's not easy to step from that situation of complete intensity and, and having everything circumscribed right back into your life um, and not to feel yourself sort of really rattled. Hmm. I, don't, I don't think we hear people talk about that very much. You hear about the other movement towards that clarity. Yeah. Because yeah. this illness you have is um, its very hard to predict the course of your health, right, or your it is very, it's impossible to predict, and it seems to be different for every person. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people don't have to have transplants. Uh, I've had this transplant, and hopefully it will, hopefully it will work. They're not really, not really saying it's a cure, um, but, uh, you know, hopefully it would be a long, long remission. Yeah. You've written about, um, you know, you talked a minute ago about how you didn't, you don't use the word God in that poem, but it was about God, and... Mm-hmm. I mean, God, just the word, well, not just the word, the idea. You've written about how it's difficult for modern people. And you, you, wrote, you wrote an essay about, um, you talked about it being at a dinner party. So you wanted to, and you, you, you talk about like existential anxiety, which is something that all the classic philosophers and theologians wrote about even in, in the 20th century, you know, Niebuhr. Right. It's the, cla- the anxiety, essential anxiety that's at the heart of the human condition. And I, I don't think we talk, I, I hadn't, you know, when I'm reading you, I'm thinking, gosh, I don't think there are lots of people now who are right in the middle of things writing about this. But, but actually what you helped me see is that we, we do talk about this all the time, but we don't talk about it in that way. We, we talk about how our technology is driving us crazy, how we have to create downtime and, right, how we don't have space in our lives for what matters. It's just the, the trappings of this existential anxiety are very different and also very new. Um, yeah, we talk about our, we've deflected the, sel- the soul into the, into questions of the self. We, you know, uh-huh. we, we, uh, um, that, and there's a great quote from Fanny Howard. She talks about the self has replaced the soul with the, with the fist of survival. Mm. That we've created a, a kind of a climate in which to survive, we need all need to hone ourselves 
and and so right. we you know we develop and and hone ourselves and we project those selves in all kinds of various ways and you know whether it's Facebook or whatever whatever we're doing, uh, we think of our lives as as uh, being successful to the extent that those selves are ratified and by other people and and uh, uh, we've gotten away from the notion of the soul. It can be a real shock suddenly to think of the soul, which is uh, apart from all of this and and uh, independent of it and 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 uh, primary um, and I, I think um, it can be a real shock to find somebody who is you know suddenly talking about those things quite openly um, right. you know, I find Ma- I find Marilyn Robinson wonderful in that way because she's uh, she started out very obliquely if you read housekeeping a lot of people I that that book, uh, seem to be more loved by secular people than by mm-hmm. religious people, but it's a Christian book to its core, and she's become much more direct in the way she's uh, addressing these things. But I think it's 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 quite bracing to to read her, you know, because she's she's become so famous, and yet she's addressing these timeless questions uh, very directly. Uh, what I'm aware of too is. Even though we don't necessarily have vocabularies or places to talk about these things head on or even to realize that that's what we're talking about, when it's presented like that, you know, when Marilyn Robinson writes or when you are on Bill Moyers, people are completely drawn to that. Right? They recognize uh, that they do want to be talking about this. Yeah, starved for it. Just absolutely starved for it. I've been... I've been uh shocked by the response to that uh, essay that I, I mean, I'm sorry, but I've been shocked by that interview that I did with Bill Moyers. I did it way back in December, and mm-hmm. they broadcast it recently, but the responses to that have just uh, sort of caught me off guard. I, they're, it's like I've, like we've talked about, there are just so many people, well, I'm sure you get it with your show. Yeah, I, I mean, are, I'm aware yeah, of it all, every week it's, yeah. Yeah, there's so many people who are I mean, just so desperate to have some kind of a language to uh, discuss these things and to mm-hmm. feel these things. And, you know, one of the, one of the reasons um, uh, I, I believe that, uh, I mean, I, I, I am a Christian. I believe that Christ comes alive when we, uh, in communion between people. And I think you, uh, um, Sometimes I'll think all kinds of things are wrong with my life. Like, you know, my, my job is messing me up. My, my writing is messed up. Something's messed up. And then I'll have a conversation uh, with someone about uh, a religious topic or, or, or you know, or, or it's spiritually um, informed in some way and it's honest. And even if we don't get anywhere, even if we disagree, mm-hmm. uh, some, some, the air has been cleared in me. And and I realized that uh, that in some ways that I was dealing with all these things that weren't the ground, uh, weren't weren't bedrock, you know, or that they, were, they weren't the ground of my being. And I'm I'm trying to take care of things, um, the structures on top instead of the ground of my being. And I I find that often all you need is some kind of conversation with someone. Uh, even if it's just expressing pure anxiety. Right, which just names uh, that, yeah. even if it doesn't tie it up. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. Just names it and shares it, and yeah. that it can stabilize you in the world. 
and I think that's something also that modern people will identify with in the way you talk about faith is about the animating aspect of doubt in that, like even in your prayers, you know, even in the yeah. act of going to church. It's not something separate. Yeah. It's not a problem. It's just part yeah. of it. Well, there's this other poem. It, it, let me read this other yeah. poem that you can think of immediately adjacent to uh, From a Window. It's, it's from the same book, Every Riven Thing. It's not adjacent to it in the book, but it is in my mind. It's called Hammer is the Prayer. There is no consolation in the thought of God, he said, slamming another nail in another house another havoc had half taken. Grace is not consciousness, nor is it beyond, to hell with remembrance, to hell with heaven. Hammer is the prayer of the poor and the dying. And as wind in some lordless random comes to rest, and all the disquieted dust within, peace came to the hinterlands of our minds, too remote to know, but peace nonetheless. Hmm. I wrote, I wrote several poems after that uh, from a window. From a window was one of several poems that seemed to me to, uh, you know, to to express some sort of real belief that I could build on. And then I wrote these other poems that seemed to just repudiate it all and seemed to give up all the gains I had made. And, and like this one where, you know, I mean, God is actually, you know, expunged from this poem. There is no consolation in the thought of God, this poem starts. And I wrote others that, you know, weren't, weren't um, not only did they, you know, did they not credit the idea of heaven, they actually mocked the notion, actually, you know, actually uh, made fun of it. And... And I didn't do this purposefully. I mean, the poems got written. You know, they they did yeah. they uh, they happened to me, and so I I sort of looked up in the aftermath of them and you know thought, well, what in the world is going on? Why don't why am I writing these? And I think it's very much what you said that uh, doubt is so woven in with what I think of as faith that it can't be separated. And and I, I've also I mean, the strange thing is, is that I didn't feel different writing these poems than I did writing from a window. Right. I felt that same access of energy, and I am convinced that the same God that might call me to to sing of God at, at one time might call me at another to sing of godlessness, and that um, sometimes when I think of all of this energy that's going on, all of this what we've talked about, these different uh, people trying to find some way of uh, naming and sharing their belief, I think. I think it may be the case that God calls some people to unbelief in order that faith can take new forms. Mm. And can't you also see it as as continuity? I mean, let's say let's go back to the idea that you discovered love at the same time that you discovered faith in a mature relationship, in love as in faith. <laughs> the feeling isn't always there, right? That initial clarity and intensity is, yeah. is not a constant part of actually being vital and growing. But it's part of the health of the thing. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, I hadn't thought of that, but that's helpful for me to, to think of it that way. It, um, 
yeah, I think you that's... You know, if we're grown-ups uh, about this stuff, right? If we're grown-ups about faith, then... Then why can't we have... Right, why can't... You know, why can't we all get together and, and uh, lament the fact that there's no God? You know, I think, uh, well, I mean, the, the Bible is actually full of moments like that, too. Yes. You know, uh, uh, I think that is part of any mature faith. You're right. But I, but I uh, like so many people tend to fall into despair at those moments and think, oh, my God, I don't believe in anything. And, yeah, well, we fall and, into uh, those moments of despair in our love relationships as well, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you wrote, you were quoting Seamus Heaney about writing poetry, but it seemed to me that this also applies to the life of faith. And, you know, I like the way you also took it to this grand level. I mean, maybe it's the life of faith and, and life of an individual. Maybe it's it's our culture over a few hundred years. <laughs> you know, you said, uh, compose in darkness, expect aurora borealis in the long foray, but no cascade of light. I really, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, Heaney is a, uh, if people haven't read him out there, he's one of the uh, greatest poets alive. Uh, and and he's been an exemplary model for me because he's a, uh, a poet who's grown throughout his life in terms of his his poems, um, uh, but he has also opened himself up to very different things. He says in one poem, you know, me waiting to fifty to credit the miraculous or the marvelous. Maybe it is. I forget what it mm. is. But but uh, you know, he he was uh, it was quite late in his life until he allowed this um, what I would think of as a spiritual energy or um, into his work. It's very different different you know, sort of energy that than the uh, concrete physical reality of his early poems. Something that I'm really aware of that just is, is another dimension of this spiritual hunger that we've been talking about is we now have people living so much longer. And I was, I was being in Sun Valley, Idaho a couple of years ago, which is a place where a lot of people are living when they're retired, you know, in that a latter stage of their life when they wouldn't even have still been alive a couple of generations ago. And somebody mm-hmm. asked me about, you know, said how thrilling it is to be a seeker, a spiritual seeker in your 80s. And I realized that this is a whole new human phenomenon. And it's so interesting. You know, it's very different when people are having this experience in their 80s than when they're in their 20s. Um, it's very rich. You know, it's very exciting, I think, for us as a culture for that to be going on. Do you think... Uh, so? Did that person express any anxiety about that, or was it was it a sort of a purely? It was a pure like a liberation. I think it's partly it's a generation where of people who, when they were younger, um, grew up in those religious worlds like you and me, where there were no questions and a lot mm-hmm. of nourishment and meaning. Um, but they've gotten to this later stage of life where they've lived through so much, so they have so many raw materials for theology. And for questions, and they're not necessarily throwing overboard the faith that they've held through their lives, but they're just they're empowered to be questioning and learning new things in a way that they weren't empowered when they were younger. And it's really hmm. thrilling. They're really excited. <laughs> That's interesting. Gosh, I, w- I would I would like to reach a stage where I could uh, rest a little. <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> I'd, li- I'd like to. <laughs> I would like it not to be so quite so uh, vertiginous. You know, yeah. So, um, but you're in your forties, right? You're... Yeah. 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 
I wonder, um, it struck me when I was thinking about talking to you that there's a lot of language about death in religion and in poetry. And I wonder if some of it feels, I mean, how your perspective on that has changed, being, as we've said, a person who's more conscious of his own mortality than most of us. I mean, you've faced death as, you know, as possibly something in the near term. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, death and transcendence, death and beauty, death and death as a choice, death and discovering what really matters. Do you, do you hear those kinds of, that kind of language differently now? I sure do. I, uh, I hear that kind of carpe diem language. There's a famous line from uh, Wallace Stevens, death is the mother of beauty, you know, meaning that we, we can't, uh, can't ever perceive our lives until we look through it through the lens of death. But if you look through it through the lens of death, then it's suddenly much more uh, abundant and beautiful and sharp. And, and uh, I have come to think that that is just a load of crap. Uh, I think it's, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. I think, uh, it, that he, um, I think anyone who could write that line is, was someone for whom death was an abstraction, and uh, you know, a, a kind of pleasant abstraction, actually. That uh, as it is, death is an abstraction for all of us, and even 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 if you get, uh, as I have been, you know, close to dying in the last year, uh, even if you get that close, it is still an abstraction. Not as much of an abstraction, but you simply cannot imagine your own death, and the mind will not do it, hmm. and you, you, you can't quite do it. And, hmm. um, uh, I think that, um, that we actually have to have the past and the future uh, in any... We, if you think about it, we have no present. You know, we, we're always remembering there is no actual present, just, just, just the way reality is. It takes that long for our brains to process the instant. Hmm. Um, we're, we're always remembering events and we're always projecting some sort of future. And, uh, I think that's where meaning, that's how we get meaning in our lives. And if you take that away from someone, if you, if you take futurity out of the equation, any sense of futurity, then, uh, I think you just, uh, you, you leach meaning out of an experience just as surely as if you just cut out somebody's past entirely, you cut out their memory. Mm. And I think what that poem from a window that I read, what that poem showed me, uh, revealed to me, was some possibility of, of a continuation, you know, some the spirit continuing, and um, uh, hmm. I find that uh, for me, I had to look at. Let's see how to phrase this. It was. It was somehow, um, I didn't find that a secure, uh, you know, or, or a, exactly a peaceful thing. It's not as if I imagined walking in heaven and meeting all my relatives and, you know, it being this warm, comforting thing. But I do, I, I feel more that my imagination keeps opening onto these eccentric heavens. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, I, and I have to give them um, credit. I have to give them their due. I'm much more moved. I think if you think of someone like Wallace Stevens, he sat back and said, death is the mother of beauty, hence from her shall come the fulfillment to all our dreams and our desires. It's very distant, it's very detached, it's a very abstract notion of how we live our lives. I'm much more moved by someone like 
the Russian poet Osip Mandelstam, and I happened to just just have yes. translated his selected poem, a few of his poems, and and let me read you this. This yes. is the last poem that Mandelstam wrote. Now Mandelstam was hounded to death by Stalin, and uh, one of the reasons was he wrote a famous poem that was a mockery of Stalin, which he recited to some friends, and in those days people could. Um, they were so used to hearing poetry and reciting poetry that they could hear it once and, and keep it and someone keep it in their heads and someone memorized the poem from his recitation and then took mm. it to Stalin mm. and his fate was sealed. But in fact, it was sort of sealed long before that because he there was something about Mandelstam that drove Stalin insane. There was a kind I think it was a kind of irrepressibility and freedom and pure lyric genius that was everything that that Stalin could never. Re- fully repress, you know, that he just could not fully control. And so, so here's the last day of Mandelstam's writing life, not the last day of his life. He died in a transit camp not long after this, picking through garbage was the last anyone saw of him. And, and he knew what was about to happen to him. And he knew all too well. And he was composing these poems right up until the end. Uh, The last day he died, he wrote either two or three poems, depending on how you put these poems together. But This was one of them. And I was alive in the blizzard of the blossoming pear. Myself I stood in the storm of the bird cherry tree. It was all leaf life and star shower, unerring, self-shattering power. And it was all aimed at me. What is this dire delight, flowering, fleeing, always earth? What is being? What is truth? Blossoms rupture and rapture the air, all hover and hammer, time intensified and time intolerable, sweetness raveling rot. It is now. It is not. Now that seems to me an incredible expression of hope, and persistence, mm-hmm. and, and you know, Seamus Heaney says somewhere, you know, hope is not a condition of your soul. Uh, hope is a condition of your soul, not a response to the circumstances in which you find yourself. I'm mangling that somehow, <laughs> but uh, think of it and think of Osip Mandelstam writing this, knowing what he was going to, and compare that with Wallace Stevens <laughs> sitting back and saying, "Death is the mother of beauty." <laughs> right. Well, and it's, <laughs> I keep that line you said a minute ago: "The eccentric heavens." That this I do that. That I also hear that there. Yeah, these uh, these strange ways, that strange, strange sort of um, uh, ways of surviving seem to keep occurring to me. Though I, you know, I, if you ask me, do I believe in heaven? No, I don't really believe in heaven in the way that people conceive of it. Mm. And yet, and yet, uh, and yet, it somehow keeps asserting itself in my imagination. <laughs> right. Mm. So if I ask you um, to think about yourself in church all those years ago in West Texas, the church you grew up in, which was just given to you like the air you breathed, mm-hmm. and then when you're in church now, you know, what's, what's going on that's different? How is that experience different? Well, it's, it's utterly different. It's utterly different. I think it's a it's a weaker experience now. I mean, I'm just too conscious. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm unable to let myself, I wish I were able to let myself go in ways that, yeah. uh, that, uh, 
uh, those people did in my childhood and still do. And when I go to my mother's church now, it's one of those big mega churches. And, and uh, you know, I don't agree with everything. that I don't agree with their theology, and I don't like a, you know, a lot of the ways that they uh, commercialize their services. But um, it is uh, an incredibly diverse church, and, it, and the people are intensely involved mm-hmm. with their... It, the, they're treating it as if their whole life were at stake. And in the churches I go to, liberal Protestant churches, um, it seems pretty casual. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it lacks that intensity. And I really miss that intensity. Hmm. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go to a, you know, a, a huge church and get intoxicated, but, but, uh, but I do miss it. Hmm. I wish there were some credible middle ground. I wish there were, there were some way of uh, harnessing that the intensity that I felt in my childhood in more sophisticated ways. That may be another way of describing what the new language that you that we talked about that a lot of people now are searching for. It's not just new language, it's new forms, right? Yeah. And I think art is a big has a big role to play in that. Mm. You know, art art the encompassing art, poetry and music and just the experience of art. How, say some more. Even like this, this, this discussion you're going to have with pastors about bringing poetry into liturgy in a different way, that kind of thing. Well, I think that, I mean, if I think of some of the most intense experiences in my life, they are artistic experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and not simply making art, but responding to it. And I think if a church could allow those experiences to happen without necessarily putting them in place and saying they have to be... You know, they mean this in our liturgy, or they they represent right. this. Right, they get you know? very self conscious. You know, when people just right. inject art into worship, it, right? That's the danger yeah. there. You're talking yeah, about it I've, being. Part I've of seen effect. it done well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, I've I've seen it done well. Where it, it is just, in fact, I did, I'm just coming from a. Uh, I was out on Whidbey Island mm-hmm. at a uh, conference, and and uh, the people there put on. I guess the students did. They put on a sort of makeshift service and uh, it was made up of songs that uh, clearly had been written by uh, one of the people there and and uh, had just you know sort of been set to music on the spot and mm-hmm. and uh, and there was a poem and and it was unlike any service that I had been to just they just sort of did one thing after another which were all addressed to God um, uh, and that was the service and I found it very beautiful very moving uh, sort of the perfect thing for me hmm in the in the preface to Ambition and Survival, this collection of writings, um, which was 2007, so it was a few years back, you wrote, um, I still believe that a life in poetry demands absolutely everything, including, it has turned out for me, the belief that a life in poetry demands absolutely everything. Would you tell me what you mean when you say that? Oh, no. Paradox. <laughs> or do you... <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's five years yeah, ago, gonna, so maybe it's not still true. But if it is, what is it? What do you mean? I'm trying to wrap my head, my mind around it. For years, I, I, uh, uh, there's a there's a poem I love by a Canadian poet named Robert Bringhurst, and it starts like this: These poems, these poems, these poems, she said, are poems with no love in them. These are the poems of a man who would leave his wife and child because they made noise in his study. She said. These are the poems of a man who would murder his mother 
to claim the inheritance. These are the poems of a man like Plato, she said, meaning something I did not comprehend, but which nevertheless offended me. These are the poems of a man who would rather sleep with himself than with women, she said. These are the poems of a man with eyes like a draw knife, hands like a pickpocket's hands, woven of water and logic and hunger, with no strand of love in them. These poems are as heartless as birdsong, as unmeant as elm leaves, which if they love, love only the wide blue sky and the air and the idea of elm leaves. Self-love is an ending, she said, not a beginning. Love means love of the things sung, not of the song or the singing. These poems, she said. You are, I said, beautiful. That is not love, she said rightly. Mm. I didn't mean to quote that whole thing, but... Mm. But for years, I carried that poem like it was a kind of totem in my mind. It was just, it expressed to me so perfectly what uh, sort of tensions that I felt between my life and my life as an artist and my, my life. And, uh, and I felt that I was giving everything to poetry, and you had to give everything to poetry. And yet at the same time, I felt some sort of essential energy missing from some of my poems. And, and, um, uh, I had to eventually give up that notion that you could give your whole life to poetry, that poetry could be this abstract thing that you could devote your life to. I mean, I'd made a god. You talk about idolatry. I'd made a, a mm. god out of it. And I had to have that shattered in order to uh, come to write some of the poems that are in in the new, in every ribbon thing. Uh, I had to really have that notion tested severely. And do you feel that these new poems um, do better integrate your life as a poet and your and life? Definitely. That, yeah. It's funny when you I, say that, I feel like what you're describing, you could a lot of lives have that tension. It's you can you can you can replace the word poetry with, you know, whatever someone's work is or Right. You know, their yeah. whatever relationships they've invested in to the exclusion of other things. It's, the particular I mean, difficulty of art is that is that uh, it's the emotional uh, the emotional intensity yeah. that you need to give to art uh, is is asked for by other people, and you often well, I had I had the I had the sense that life was fuel for art. That you know, mm-hmm. you, you that uh, um, it just got burned up in the in in using it, and and because uh, it's not a question of time, you know, you you could sometimes spend an hour a day writing poems. It it doesn't, you know, you you can't sit there for twelve hours and try to write poetry. Yeah. It's a question of of uh, emotional availability and and just you know, how much how much you can give yourself over to life if you're giving yourself over to waiting for poems. Mm. And um, uh, I have found that I've, you know, greatly changed that. Um, you know, somebody may come along in the future and say his work falls apart right at that instant. <laughs> and, and it's a downhill slide after that. Uh, that has happened to many writers. Hmm. So, I, you know, I don't, I'm not the one to say. 
Um, I think I'd like to, to end by having you read um, at least maybe maybe one of the poems or, or maybe more that that illustrate what you just said, the place you've come to where that paradox is less agonizing. But um, okay. is there anything that I feel like we've it's been such a beautiful conversation and we've gone in a lot of places, but is there anything that you feel like you wanted to say or you want to add that I didn't ask about? Hmm. I'm not thinking of anything. Okay. I mean, we've covered a lot. Yeah, we have. Um, <laughs> it's going to be fun for me to listen to this because I, yeah. I, I won't. I can't. I'm right. I'm in it, right? So, but I know. I mean, it's been wonderful. Um, let me read a little poem uh, that's to my to my wife, uh, and you could put it right next to that poem mm-hmm. uh, that I just quoted by the Canadian poet Robert Bringhurst. Called the, that poem is called These Poems. Uh, this poem is called For D. Groans going all the way up a young tree, half cracked and caught in the crook of another. Pause. All around the hill-ringed, heavened pond, leaves shush themselves like an audience. A cellular stillness, as of some huge attention bearing down. May I hold your hand? A clutch of mayflies banqueting on oblivion writhes above the water like visible light. That's a little love poem. Uh, Mm. Uh, uh, of and it's a poem of I I think equanimity. You know, it's a poem of mm, right. of uh, almost peace in face of that of that oblivion. Do you want any others? Yeah, sure. I was thinking it might be a poem your grandmother would like too. That's true. You know, I I um you know when I set out to write my first book, I wanted to write uh, a a big part of that book is actually in the voice of my grandmother mm. a sort of composite a composite woman that I created out of different voices but it's mostly her voice and and uh uh I wanted to write something that they could understand I want it, I wanted it to have all different levels I mean I didn't want to simplify it and write a you know a simplistic poem but I wanted to write something that they could understand mm-hmm. she died before I uh finished it I I actually read part of it to her uh and she was on her deathbed. I don't know if she heard mm. it or not. Mm. Let's see. Here's one. Here's a poem of. Um, here's a poem that you might think of as a kind of uh, reproach to that self that was so enamored by the notion of giving all to art and <laughs> and uh um, and and also of uh, suffering it's called and i said to my soul be loud hmm. that is a from t.s Eliot says and i said to my soul be still and and i turn that around Madden me back to an afternoon I carry in me, not like a wound, but like a will against a wound. Give me again enough man to be the child choosing my own annihilations, to make 
of this severed limb, a wand to conjure, a weapon to shatter, dark matter of the dirt dauber's nest, galaxies of glass. Whacking glints, bash dancing on the cellar's fire, I am the sound the sun would make if the sun could make a sound, and the gasp of rot stabbed from the compost's lump and living death is me. Oh, my life, my war in a jar, I shake you and shake you, and may the best ant win. For I am come a whirlwind of wasted things, and I will ride this tantrum back to God and tell my fixed self, my fluorescent self, my grief-nibbling, unbewildered, wall-to-wall self, withers in me like a salted slug. You can tell what my childhood was like. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> tormenting, love that. I love tormenting. that. <laughs> oh. We used to put a... Put a, we used to have all kinds of battles in jars between scorpions and tarantulas and ants. And yeah, I grew up in that part and, of the world too. I know everything yeah, was poisonous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> up here in the north, they don't believe you. Oh, I think that's great. If you want to read one more, that's fine, or we can finish. It's so good. Okay, let me see if there's. Here's one that's set in Chicago. This is just, uh, I live on the north side, and, and uh, this is just uh, a poem, me sitting at, the win- at, at, the, at my window looking out of our, onto our front lawn um, with my dog. Albany Park is where we live. It's called It Takes Particular Clicks. Flip-flops, leash clinks, spit on the concrete like a light slap. Our dawn goon ambles past, flexing his pit bull. And soft and soon a low burn lights the flight path from O'Hare, slowly the sky a roaring flew to heaven, slowly shut. Here's a curse for a car door stuck for the umpteenth time, here a rake for next door's nut to claw and claw at nothing. My nature is to make of the speed bump scraping the speeder's undercarriage and the ohm of traffic and somewhere the helicopter hovering over snarls, a kind of clockwork from which all things seek release, but it takes particular clicks to pique my poodle's interest naming with her nose's particular quiver the unseeable, unsayable squirrel. Good girl. That's a religious poem, if you get right down to it. (laughs) (laughs) A poem about her her (laughs) spiritually superior instincts. (laughs) Well, I, I think we're done. Um... We well, I think we're going to put this on the air pretty quickly for us, okay. and um, we'll let you know. I give you all that detail, and um, we might have some questions. I'm assuming we're you've been emailing with somebody. Um, I haven't actually, but oh, but I, is they, that all going to your publicist? It, yeah, but it can go directly to me. Okay, it's easier if it goes to me. What's your email address then? C just c wyman uh-huh. at poetrymagazine.org. Okay. 
So we'll start writing to you directly there. Okay. All right. I, this was such a pleasure. Um, Great to talk to you, Krista. I'm yeah. a real fan. Great. I'm a real fan. Well, I hope, I, hope we really meet happy. in person sometime. I do, too. I do, too. So I'll, yeah. um, I, I, I'll, I'll write you an email. Okay. Take okay. care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.